Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and with me once again are Jan Rosenau and Michaela Hull. Hi team, how are we doing this week? I have a bit of a cold, so I hope um, that doesn't show too much on, on this podcast. I'm still recovering from last week and the big all the big announcements that we've heard uh, on Repower EU. So I'm still digesting the many documents that came out, but otherwise I'm fine. Great. Glad to hear it. I bet, I bet you still wish you were in, uh, was it sunny Austria where you were last week? Yeah, but I'm not back in rainy Oxford and um, it's it's cold and wet. So, um, But I'm going to the south of France for a very major energy efficiency conference in a couple of weeks. The ECEEE conference, if you are interested in energy efficiency, that's a really nice place to go. It's um, between Nice and Marseille, right on the coast. Very nice. That will help clear up any lingering cold, I'm sure. Michaela, are you, are you well? Yeah. Yeah. No exciting travel plans, but I'm in Brussels and it's not so bad these days. Very good. Yeah, spring has sprung. Absolutely. Uh also, what's springing up uh, around Europe are energy prices. And with more and more households fearing that they will not be able to pay their energy bills, in the UK this week, uh, it was announced household bills could average uh, an increase of £800 later this year in October. And that follows an increase of around £700 uh, just in April, uh, just gone. So lawmakers around Europe are increasingly drawing attention to addressing energy poverty, how to make the energy transition fair for the most vulnerable consumers. As well as being effective, the energy transition must also be socially just and help those in need to make the switch to a decarbonized future in the most affordable and practical way. This week, our guest is Monique Goyens. Since 2007, Monique has been Director General of the BEUC, the European Consumer Organization. Monique, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, Monique, just to kick off there, maybe we should uh, touch on uh, how do we define energy poverty or how should we define it and what areas of society are highest highest risk and will more households fall into, fall into this category? Well, yes, you know, uh, when we started to work on energy poverty a few years ago, uh, this was considered to be like a niche sector, you know, energy poor. It was like a dirty concept. Uh, and uh, what we are seeing there is, in fact, that, first of all, that it's very difficult to define and there should be no human uh, harmonized definition at European level because it depends on so many different factors depending on, on where you live uh, in, in Europe. Uh, what we see now is that, in fact, of course, energy poverty um, um, is, is not anymore a niche uh, issue because with the energy prices, uh, um, going up uh, really into the roof, you see more and more households struggling. Uh, and uh, if you want to have some sort of a definition is that it is really energy poor households are households that just struggle to keep their ho uh, homes uh, warm or cold uh, uh, to be able to, to cook uh, warm meals and to be able to use the, uh, the electric appliances. 
Um, I don't want to give any figures, but it's, uh, you know, it's really very important. We are uh, speaking, depending on the statistics, of between 50 and 120 million people in Europe. So this is, is quite something. What I would like to say is that energy poverty is a concept that is not really, um, I mean, you need to realize that when you help people out of energy poverty in a structural way, you help them out of poverty, not only energy poverty. So it's really important because for energy poor households, um, if you reduce their energy bill, you can really make their lives easier in all uh, uh, areas because then they can afford food, they can afford education, and sometimes even uh, some 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 leisure. Uh, what we see now is that the crisis that is currently a crisis, uh, considered as an energy crisis, goes much further because it becomes an economic crisis, a food crisis for people, because all prices are going up. So we are going into an economic crisis where people are not just energy poor, but they will struggle to to pay a lot of um, of their uh, normal, let's say, uh, household bills. So it is really important to address what is called traditionally energy poverty. Uh, and there a lot can be done. And, and we have, uh, I don't know whether you are aware of a project that is just now finalized, which was called STEP. Step is solutions to tackle energy poverty, uh, where we have highlighted uh, low-hanging fruit, uh, short-term food that can already uh, short-term measures that can already help people uh, to uh, alleviate the energy bill, but then also medium-term and, and long-term uh, measures. And for us, the most important measure there is energy efficiency. Monique, um, a, a a many years ago, I was invited to give evidence to the uh, UK Parliament on energy efficiency and. Um, fuel poverty, which is the term that's more common um, in the UK where I live. And I remember one of the members of parliament <clears throat> took issue with that term. And he basically said, well, there isn't really such thing as fuel poverty. Otherwise, there would be clothes poverty or food poverty. And it's basically just poverty. And and his his uh, argument was that um, you know, energy policies shouldn't be about that. You know, that's something for social policy. We should treat them separately. And and uh, the, the term itself was 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 kind of loaded and wasn't wasn't helpful. Um, uh, I, you know, I actually don't agree with that. But I would like to hear kind of your perspective. Why? Like, do you think that it's useful to talk about energy poverty specifically? And um, and, and and if so, sort of why? And and how can it help us um, to support those on you know, very low incomes, um, uh, even now, I think, on, on middle incomes who struggle with the um, uh, inflation that we're seeing across all the sectors, not just energy. Well, uh, there is a high degree of social policy that needs to be invested in, in order in the short term to address energy poverty. But I really think that we need to go um, into systemic thinking uh, because um, so I think that you need in the short term with social measures to alleviate the energy bill for those who are most, uh, let's say, the, the least affluent in our societies. But on the other hand, you really need to go into a mass change of our lifestyles, you know, in order to address climate change, environmental uh, challenges. And in order to do that, you have to help everybody. Uh, and that means that um, you, you really need to have all consumers, all households on board also the ones that are middle income or low income. That means that you need to design energy measures, energy policy in a way that helps most those that are the, uh, the, the, the less affluent ones. So it becomes, uh, in fact, low income consumers become part of the energy solution. 
And in order to have them on board, you need to design your energy solutions. You have to have the social measures in the short term, for sure, because you need to have them survive. But uh, you need really to design um, the uh, energy um, measures uh, in a way that can be that they can be taken on board also by the uh, by the low income households. I have to say, I never liked so much the concept of energy poverty for precise. Yeah, because it is also often mistaken. No, no, not abused is the word I look for um, by people who want to slow down the decarbonization and then all of a sudden discover there's a social aspect to it. Um, so, uh, and as you say, it's more systemic in many cases. Um, and I wanted to ask you because you know we've seen now with the uh, with the in, in, with how how member states reacted with price support. Have you do you have an overview in actually how many member states did it in a targeted way to really give the money to those who need it, or whether in many member states like Germany, you know what they were what they discussed mostly was 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 money mostly for the rich uh, because they they use the car more often so um, can you say something about that whether that was actually respected in some countries or well i have no statistical data that i can legitimately say claim uh, uh, are, are valid uh, what i see in my own country i just received a reduction of 100 euro on my energy uh, bill Oh, uh, I received that too. Yeah, I mean, all of us living in Belgium received that and I can really afford those 100 euros. I thought the same. First of all, I was happy and then I felt bad. I was happy about it because exactly of what we are discussing. Yes. No, I really think that there, I, I, I don't have, I cannot really claim to have a, an overview over the member states, but the feedback I get from my colleagues is that there has been not this fine tuning of, about um, really channeling this support to those who need it most. And yeah. it's the richer ones who will benefit most. And by the way, yeah. uh, this is also um, something that really needs to be taken into account. What we see for the moment is in energy policies, you know, where you have subsidies for heat pumps or for solar panels or for electric cars. In fact, those subsidies are being cross-subsidized by the poor people because they mm. still have very high energy bills uh, and still are being mm. cold because the house is not well insulated. So uh, if you would um, uh, help, um, prioritize for example, uh, the uh, retrofitting of social housing, that would be much better in terms of global energy efficiency and in addressing the, the social issue about uh, trying to, uh, to help those people who need it most. Uh, you see? And so it's really like uh, they keep on paying high bills uh, without any benefit, while those who can afford, in fact, an upfront investment, or at least with a little bit of effort, can afford an upfront investment, they are being helped to be at a high level, at a high segment of energy efficiency in their homes or in their cars. And that's something that is unjust. And that's something that we, that creates frustration with the people who are uh, in the, the low-income uh, segments of the, yeah. of, the, of the society. And that's what Yellow Vest means. Huh? Um, yeah. So, And we need to address this in a way um, that is much more um, discriminatory but in the positive sense you know positive discrimination yeah. and how, how, i mean how can we make the case for this um in a in a more compelling way i wonder because when you know this is this is an old discussion right? this goes back a long time and when people uh said before um you know gas prices went through the roof and and, and the war in ukraine and all of that um that there's a risk and we exposed you know importing all these fossil fuels and and um, there, there might be a high cost at some point 
that didn't really get a lot of traction, did it? I mean, um, there wasn't a massive investment um, in energy efficiency and moving away from fossil fuels. And, and kind of now everybody is asking, why haven't we done more? You know, it's but it's it's it, it can't happen overnight. This this kind of stuff takes takes time. It takes takes years, um, maybe decades. Um, and, and I mean, how can we as a society ensure this doesn't happen again and really focus, especially on you know, those kinds of households you, you, you name, Monique, um, to make sure that they uh, are protected, you know, that the next time we see that um, a crisis at the, you know, this scale, how can we make sure that they are shielded from, from those price increases? Uh, well, I mean, that's that's a long answer uh, um, that, that is needed, but it's really... Um, well, but we, I think we need to change the narrative around that. This is, this is not about, of course, the fact that there has been an invasion of Ukraine will help uh, to su- uh, support in public opinion to get rid of this dependency. So the move away from fossil fuels might be helped uh, by uh, by what's happening uh, for the moment. I mean, it should not happen, happen but voila, this can be used as an opportunity in order to, to steer us into um, energy efficiency or renewables. So I think this is happening. I have never seen so much, uh, and I might be maybe in a bubble, but I also with other things than people who are working on energy efficiency, but I have never seen so much talk, <clears throat> sorry, about solar panels and heat pumps. Heat pumps are now mainstreaming a, 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 on Belgian radio and television. So that means that there is something happening there, which will lead to public ac- acceptance of uh, renewables much more than before. Huh? Um, and uh, what, I, what we try to do is really... Um, when you speak about what's happening now and really the shift that is needed to to the really the the duo uh, energy efficiency and renewables um, is uh, we speak about four benefits. First of all, it's reducing the energy bill of everybody. That means that every consumer has an interest into moving, transiting. Second, it's about of course you do something good for the climate. Third, it's geopolitics. You want to be part of the sanctions or, you know, uh, the response to Russia or any other invader or any other uh, autocratic regime, uh, get uh, get rid of the dependency. And fourth, it has the social dimension. If you can reduce a dependency or dependency on fossil gas, and if you can, you know, get rid of this dependency on price volatility in the markets, which is also a system that might need to be overhauled, uh, then you help also the less affluent ones. So if that narrative can be mainstreamed, and we need, I, I agree with you, we need still to convince policymakers in some countries to support that. I think we have convinced the European Commission we now need to convince we, uh, European Parliament might be convincible, but now the, the member states need to roll it out. And that's what we see with uh, Repower also. Uh, uh, that a lot of things in the good direction, but locally, consumers still face too many barriers in order to be able to take up the transition. Mm. So you are overly happy from a consumer point of view with regard to the Repower package, because frankly, I I felt that there was a certain bias towards, you know, centralized, uh, you know, money, we are giving money more again to centralized production, strong focus on hydrogen instead of a heat pump accelerator, no fresh money for the small stuff. Rather, we take the money from the small stuff. I think the cohesion money was very good in the past also too, because they were always focusing a little bit on the local no, on communities, on they 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 excluded the big 
projects. And so it's this budget that now can also be used to tackle the crisis. So um, what's your overall judgment then? Um, what you say about this package? Well, I leave it to my to my colleagues who are more experts uh, to to go into the details of that. But the general direction we found it good. Now, don't ask me about no, ask me about hydrogen. This is this is really something. This is just <laughs> very efficient lobbying. Oh yeah, by an industry that needs to reinvent itself. Huh? So uh, I really believe that uh, from the consumer perspective, certainly when it comes to household heating, don't get hydrogen get into the in, into the system for for, for private households. Huh? Uh, so this is something that we are really trying uh, to um, to deliver quite strongly as a message. This is not efficient um, and, and it will be expensive for consumers at the end of the day. So that is not part of the solution. Um, I, we, we don't say that it's not part of the, might not, might be part of the energy mix overall, but um, don't get consumers into buying into that, you know, um, in, into that promise, which is we, for, for us, I believe is just a, a lot of disinformation about that. And I have to say there, I feel that the lobby efforts by this industry has got some traction with the European Commission. Uh, there is a lot of hype around uh, hydrogen that should not get that attention that, that uh, for the moment uh, yeah, it is having. I, I tend to agree. I might add one, which again, I think is interesting from a consumer perspective. Um, uh, I will not go into much details, but it's basically these rules to what extent if you feed your electrolyzer with uh, power from the grid, to what extent it has to be additional to the renewables that we have yeah. already installed. Huh? I'm not getting more techy than that because, Monique, you said before, please don't ask me about articles. <laughs> but OK, let's leave it at that. And so basically, again, the very efficient lobby basically uh, got a clause in there that uh, that would would allow them to take the renewables that were paid by the consumers over the past 20 years and, you know, with that, build their investment case. And I'm just, uh, I'm just surprised that this is not, this is not seen then in the commission as part of the process, that this is from an, from a fairness point of view, not good because the hydrogen will then also go to the, the, it's not the consumers, like you say, who will be the future users. They have paid for this in the past and the future users have not contributed to it. So why, why is this not something that is obvious to a policymaker? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you should ask them. <laughs> you should, you should uh, ask them uh, very bluntly. By the way, uh, you speak about consumers paying for something that they don't get. Uh, in many, many member states, the energy bill is much more than just an energy bill. Huh? Uh, you know, for example, in Belgium, in part of your energy bill is to pay public lightning uh, in the street. At the, on uh, the highway. <laughs> yes, on the street in the, in the cities, you know. Uh, so so really? this is... Uh, yeah. And even in, in the... Yes, it's part of the, of the levies or taxes, what they are paying. It, it, this is part of it. So, and well, why should... And it's not in the professional bills, huh? It's in the uh, household bills. Really? I think you should change your, your name to Bert Taxpayer, you know, to have the wider view. Because, you know, don't you think, I mean... Like, for example, when I worked on energy, energy in general, what I always found striking is how much we focus on the rather small share of the energy cost. But then, for example, everything that happens around grid tariffs, 
No one looks into it. Not even DG Comp look, looks into it, what they do there. Huh? Well, Michaela, Rap looks into it. Rap looks we, into we it. And, and indeed, the German uh, Consumer Association has done a lot of work on it. Um, so yeah. I think uh, at some level, certainly there is, 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 is attention being paid to this matter. But uh, you're right. I mean, it's one of those geeky topics like, what are these even, you know, these network tariffs that we pay and, and why do they matter? And a lot of people do not fully understand that. Um, so it's, it's an important topic. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, the Consumer Association in Germany has been sort of very much vocal on this and um, very helpful. And the Belgian Association, Testasha, Testancoop, they have made a campaign. It's still running. Uh, and the, the title of the campaign is My Energy Bill Should Not Be a Tax Slip. Exactly. Uh, because, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, I don't know whether... I mean, I'm, I consider myself to be an educated consumer, but when I see my co my energy contract and the way they explain to me uh, in 15 pages uh, how the, the price is being, you know, uh, calculated, uh, it's just un un understandable. I'm a lawyer. I can read. I can read complicated, uh, you know, articles, but this one is just beyond my uh, skills. <laughs> Is there a way then that that could be simplified? Is it or through perhaps uh, more digital products, digitalization? Or you can look at app and see exactly where your money is going. Well, I mean, it could be certainly. You know, you have choice architecture, which is a way of uh, not just you know like throwing all the information in in very small print. I mean, this is already the first thing that you do if you want to make people understand what you're saying. You just uh, print it in or uh, use a font that is readable. Uh, and then you just use choice architecture in digital tools huh, to say, uh, what are you interested in? What would you like to know? And, and then you just go into the into the arborescence, you know, as we say in French. Uh, so, But anyway, there is an obligation to have understandable uh, energy bills, but it's still uh, rather on paper than in reality. And that's one of our major issues also. Um, I mean, uh, that's what we have highlighted in Repower, because what, what the Commission is doing there is asking to have the permitting processes in the shorter deadline, uh, deadline, which, you know, in Bulgaria, if you want to put solar panels on your house, on your roof, it, it, it takes three years. Uh, so this is, of course, a, a something that is blocking everybody uh, doing it. So, But now we have to see how this is going. In practice, it should be much easier for people to install those devices. There should be... And, and on all, it's not only about the, the bureaucracy, the administration, it's also about who can I trust uh, in terms of installation, in terms of advice even. Who is the right advisor? Should I, how can I ensure that if that person tells me that I should use rather a hydrogen boiler than a, a heat pump, can I trust this person? You know, how can I know? And so there is a lot that needs to be done to overcome the real practical hurdles for people. And that, I mean, you can have as beautiful legislation as you are, strategy as you want. If on the ground there is not somebody who is credible to deliver, it won't work. And we need it to work. We need people to engage. If the people don't engage, all those strategies will be a failure. We need the, you and me to, maybe not you, <laughs> because you are <laughs> frontliners, but uh, you need all the people, the normal uh, consumers, to just change the way they use energy. You know, I'm a, uh, currently I'm a tenant uh, and uh, I, I'm so proud that I managed to convince my landlord to install solar panels. But it took me quite some calculations and, and uh, convincing, <laughs> convincing power uh, to, to, uh, to convince her. She was convinced. I'm happy about it. Uh, but then I said to myself, why does there not exist an app 
or an, any other tool where the tenant can calculate together with the landlord what's the best solution. Because I offered her an increase in my rent if she installs solar panels. And I'm still winning because my energy will, I have an electric car. So with, with an electric car, you can really win if your energy is solar. Uh, but that should be made something like, you know, you we speak about AI and machine learning. So please use it for the good, not just for hooking people on, 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 on video games. I just imagine this landlord confronted with Monique, who is calculating. <laughs> no, but I, Poor I mean, landlord. I tried to be very con uh, convincing. Huh? So I did not want to get into any trouble because I had no right to claim solar panels. But the good, if you want to story to the end, uh, and maybe the energy prices could have um, helped me in my process, but she decided also to install solar panels on her house after that. <laughs> So I was able you're to the European Solar Rooftop Initiative Ambassador, Monique. <laughs> but I have to say there's something super good in Brussels, but maybe your project was too small for it. The Brussel. I'm not living it's in Brussels. Amazing. I'm not living in Brussels. You're not in Brussels. They do everything for you. Yes. But they are very difficult in the, the roof that they want to see because if there is a chimney in the mid in the middle, they, so they are very I mean it's for free. So they install a, a solar panels for free. Spots. Yeah. Uh, but they only take the good spots. They don't take the spots that are a little bit less well exposed. But anyway, it's a good initiative. It should be everywhere. It's a win-win. I really like your your focus there on the kind of practical barriers because uh, yeah, time and time and again, I get emails or um, messages on social media from people who kind of want to do some of the things that I've done personally and talked about. And then they say, but I'm coming up against all these barriers. Um, you know, one person recently uh, emailed me and said, yeah, I really want to have a heat pump installed, but um, now the, the local council asks me to do a noise survey and it cost me almost 2,000 euros to do that. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and I don't have that kind of cash. Um, and do I really need to do that? Um, so so it's, it's not just, as you say, sort of crafting beautiful legislation, but it really needs to be then rolled out by the local actors, in this case, yeah, the council needs to help people to really make this an easy experience. Um, I, I like your example from Bulgaria with, with, with solar panels. I mean, that, that sort of stuff should just be permissible. You know, if you, if you want to have solar panels on your roof, um, you should be able to do it without having to go through a lengthy planning process. And I mean, this is actually one of the elements in Repower you are quite like, you know, for new buildings, you have to have solar on your rooftop. Um, and and that, that's a that's a no brainer, really. Um, so we should do the same for existing buildings. I mean, you, you, know, you can't necessarily force people to install it, but you could at least allow them to do it without having to go through a lengthy um, and, and expensive planning process. And, and this is really important. I, I, I repeat it very often, and you might have already heard it, but I would like to repeat it for this podca podcast. We need people to engage. It's for the planet, not only for the people. So we need them to engage. But then if you want people to take up the sustainable option, it must not only be affordable. That's the number one. It must be easy. If it's a headache, they won't do it. Um, and, and, and then it must be attractive. You can even have a fun. If you want to make it quicker, you have to have a fun element, you know, make a game out of it. Um, and, and, but it's really important. You know, sometimes people don't, um, insulate their uh, roof just because they don't want to clean up their attic, you know? And so if you put a creative system of service and somebody taking care of that, you will have much more people on board, you know? So it, it takes a lot of non-legislative steps 
on non-regulatory steps uh, to help the people. <clears throat> but it can make a, a huge difference. We've spoken a lot about the Repower EU package uh, from last week, but there's also the Fit for 55 package, which came out uh, late uh, late last year. Um, but there's been some skepticism about carbon pricing for road and road transport and buildings, which could risk even higher bills and fuel prices. Is there a compromise there that we can make that can safeguard uh, vulnerable households? Well, yes, indeed, we had stronger reservations because that would hit the less affluent most. So this is uh, total discrimination of the poorer households, and that's not what we uh, would find acceptable for the moment. Um, when, what we uh, what we have proposed is to, um, I mean, I mean, first of all, we wanted to really still have a possibility of not including private households uh, or private heating, let's say, in in this um, carbon in this extension of ETS, if that will. But I think it's quite uh, under threat that that is not going to happen. And then, of course, there will be revenues. And then we say the revenues that are going to be um, uh, received from this carbon pricing should go 100% to consumers. And um, and in fact, and then there you could really go into discrimination and help those who positive discrimination and use those funds to insulate, uh, to retrofit uh, and to, to, to get the people out of energy poverty. It could be really a beautiful way of of um, of getting people out of this, um, you know, just wasted money because the houses are not insulated. I mean, it's wasted money, and it's of course bad for the for the planet. So rather than killing your wallet and killing the planet, uh, try to really um, you know invest that money if it needs to be done. Then invest it into those who need it most. Well, Monique, I suspect you did some successful lobbying then there because didn't the European Parliament just actually vote precisely on this that they can agree that the ETS covers the commercial parts of the building and the transport, but not the private? So I, that, that, with that, you would be happy then, basically. Well, I mean, if yes, because then it will not hit. I mean, I don't know. I'm only speaking from the consumer yeah. side. And if we are not being... Uh, targeted by ETS expansion, we are, of course, uh, relieved. That's for sure. Not sure that that will stand uh, the, the end of the process, though, uh, this provision. Mm. Let's hope. That would be great. But our fallback position would then be really like the allocation, like the Climate Social Fund. Is that the... the, the yeah. yeah. That this yeah. would be allocated uh, certainly uh, for um, supporting the... Not, not supporting in social measure, but su uh, supporting the long-term measure being retrofitting. Or retrofitting, including, of course, not only insulation, but also heat, installation of uh, heat pumps and, uh, and and solar panels in, in those houses. I think the current increase in uh, gas and oil prices and electricity prices makes it quite hard politically, doesn't it, to then impose yeah. a carbon price on the building sector or the transport sector yeah, at a time where, as David has said in the introduction, people are already paying two times, three times more for their energy. And then suddenly you know, the government comes along and says, oh, no, there's a carbon price on top of that. So, so politically, I, I imagine this to be really difficult, um, even if this gets accepted as a proposal, which is, I think is still uh, very much uncertain. But, but then the national policymakers have to explain that to their respective voters and say um, there's going to be carbon price and uh, energy is getting, getting even more expensive. And even if some of that money is being used then to recycle and, you know, and invest in energy efficiency and renewables or a straight up rebate, it's, it, I, I imagine that to be quite difficult 
for policymakers to, to explain. But that shouldn't be the excuse for not doing it, no? I think if I may come in, I mean, that's what I actually didn't like in the first March communication of the European Commission on Repower. This, 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 there was still this, you know, like, let's not talk about these higher prices and give this illusion that at some point we go back to these low prices we were used in the past. But I think one should be honest that these were exceptional prices and that, you know, there is, we have the ETS because we want a high carbon price to steer. So, uh, Monique, is there a way for a politician? They all say, they all say it's difficult and I understand, but I think one has to be honest with, with the people also, like, you know, the, about the energy price and the externalities that are not in or are in. Uh, do you think there is a way to tell this to people? I think that people are fed up with energy prices rising. Huh? I mean, this is really an uh, ingredient for, uh, I mean, not, maybe not a revolution, but uh, the elections will give quite a, some, the, the upcoming elections in countries might really give a very strong signal that people are fed up. Huh? Uh, and energy prices and the, high, the, the spikes there are really something that are going to maybe benefit some of the political parties that we would not like to see uh, uh, in the driving seat huh, later. So I think, uh, indeed, it is not a good moment to go speak about, uh, yes, let's just make a, a, an increased price. Uh, you will see it will be, in the long term, it will be better for sure. This is something that, uh, that will not be um, acceptable. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. If you look forward to uh, 2030 then and beyond, what happens? Uh, what needs to happen so that the energy transition can work for consumers? Well, first of all, the energy transition can work not only for consumers, for everybody, only if you engage consumers. I really insist on that because it's the people who are going to need to change. Huh? So because it needs a lot of private investment, um, also public investment, and there could be certainly much more you know, practice what you preach, um, uh, attitudes by local authorities and, 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 uh, and regional authorities. But I, that's why I re we really believe that you need to help people to go for the sustainable option. So supporting them uh, for uh, going into renewables, supporting them to be smart in the energy consumption, uh, and, and also, <clears throat> to some extent, still, there will always be people who are less affluent. I mean, this is just a uh, mark. Societies are like that. And we still don't have to provide measures that are inclusive, meaning that maybe you should prioritize those that are less affluent in order to roll out uh, the, the, the policy. So um, I must say, uh, since a few weeks, I'm more confident that there is political will to do that. Uh, and, and really to have those supporting measures, uh, because there have been a few wake up calls <laughs> that energy efficiency is, uh, is a must and, and, and a priority. And renewables, I always uh, take the tandem with me, um, and hope that there will be now the political courage to roll it out. I mean, you need to make it, uh, uh, affordable for the people and to 
mitigate the upfront investment, you see? Because, I mean, there are a lot of people who can afford it in the long term, but who cannot really, who are afraid of making the upfront investment. So you need to be creative, maybe also talk to the financial institutions to have creative solutions to fund this this um, system. Make it practical on the ground and make it fun on the ground. Then people will move. You need to have, you need to move, you need them to move. I mean, it's taken a, a pandemic, it's taken uh, increased energy prices, it's taken a war in Ukraine for this to be uh, uh, for this to really get on the people's into people's consciousness, but it's just now the right time for people to be really engaged with their energy bill. You know, up till now, people just want to turn the light on and have the electricity there, and they want a, a fairly warm and watertight house. Is now the time to really engage these people and, and to engage engage consumers? I think that there has been a wake up call for everybody. Uh, I mean, there has been a combination of wake up calls, a lot of wake up calls. So we were very, very uh, fast asleep. Um, and I, I remember 10 years ago, uh, my, my colleagues told me people are not interested in energy. It just has to work. And whatever behind uh, how it works, people are not interested. Now it's getting a topic where people speak at family dinners, you know, about uh, and what to, uh, what are we going to do? And I think this is the moment. This is the moment where people are aware that there is something that needs to be done uh, because they're, in fact, our lives are at stake or the, our way of living is at stake. We see that you cannot do business as usual anymore. And that doesn't mean that we have to go back to the cave times, you know. We can still have... Uh, comfortable lives. We can still go on holidays, you know, on vacation, all those things that we like, but we can do it with a less important energy footprint, if I can call it like that. Uh, but that needs a little bit of effort. But again, if you have smart policy, smart rollout, it can be done with least efforts. And there are good examples. I mean, it could be maybe interesting. We should not be too negative. I think we really need to provide a positive narrative. Um, more and more. And there are so many best practices that exist uh, that we should maybe um, promote and highlight. It, it is possible uh, to have, um, you know, uh, solar panels without ruining yourself. It is possible to renovate your house without having six months uh, to live in a hotel <laughs> or uh, somewhere else. And so um, I think it is really important to, pro people don't like negative messages, huh? Well, they like it just, uh, you know, on, on Twitter so that you can then get into um, some horrible uh, conversations. But uh, the positive messaging is the one that makes people people move. If you give it, you know, stop smoking mm -hmm. because you are going to get lung cancer hasn't stopped anybody from smoking, you see. Uh, but um, if, if you can provide positive messaging and see for everybody at every segment of the society what the benefits are, I think you have them easier moved. But that needs a little bit of creativity. Uh, Monique, um, I have a question about the name of your organization. Um, I, I mean, it's it's called the European Consumer Association, and the term consumer has sometimes been criticized for suggesting that consumers are just passive recipients, right? They're just getting a, a product and a service um, that they want, they pay for it, but they're essentially um, uh, passive and then they're not really um, uh, engaged. And in in the um, energy sector, of course, we also have um, uh, you know, the term prosumer. So we, we have uh, this idea that people generate their own electricity and sell it to the grid or that they might charge their electric vehicle um, when it's best for the energy system and um, you know, helps build more renewables and integrate them more quickly. 
Um, I mean, what, what do you make of that discussion? Do, do, do you think uh, the term consumer is still appropriate? I guess you have to say yes because it's in your name. Um, yeah, that doesn't sound good. Without yeah. asking a PR company, I say no. <laughs> no. I mean, I don't want to change the name Berg into Burp to make consumers. <laughs> it's even more horrible. You know, we yeah. asked the PR company because we didn't like BEUG, you know, that said Bureau Européen des Unions de Consommateurs. It's a French acronym. Uh, and the, the PR company said to, to us, you don't change your name because you're known and you're respected under that name. You change your, your you know, the, the, the visuals and all that behind <laughs> the name, but you stay BEUG. And we have now just uh, celebrated our 60th anniversary, but that's not relevant. Really, I mean, in my definition, in my definition, first of all, being a prosumer, in fact, no, let me, let me start uh, from the basics. Being a consumer um, does not mean that you're passive. It means that you are the weaker party in a negotiation. Being a prosumer doesn't mean that you are not weak because you're still negotiating. And what I see here in Belgium, just speaking about our own uh, the situation, being a prosumer doesn't make you at all a, a, a non-weak party because somebody else decides about the price that you get for the energy that you are going to sell to the grid. Uh, or even, uh, even you know, there are so many things that are out of our control. So in fact, consumer policy, I see that in the energy sector, consumers have been very often seen, and rightly so, as um, passive and just recipients. But overall, consumer policy is about uh, restoring symmetry in an asymmetric relationship. Uh, and um, now you call it consumer, you know, you can call them uh, any type of word. It is this... Um, uh, let's say this uh, asymmetry and this imbalance in uh, bargaining power that makes us a consumer, the weaker party. And that can happen in energy, mm -hmm. in health services, uh, and in any other, you know, in digital, in, in data economy, even more, because there you are even weaker, uh, even if you have the impression that you are uh, doing a lot of things, that you are empowered because you are on uh, digital. So I would, uh, I don't think that we need to uh, reinvent the word. What, what is for us more complicated is uh, a consumer concept is in a, in a market relationship between a market player and a, um, and, um, and, and a private person. Now, in energy, very often there is a little bit blurred lines because it has also been very often like a public service, in the, at least in the past. Now this is over. But still, um, there is also the concept of user. There is the concept of citizen because there is this taxpayer uh, element. Uh, and, and certainly when you have energy policies that come with subsidies, you have fiscal policies, social policies. So there is a lot of, um, of blurred lines. But I don't really mind. I think consumer still has um, has a significance there. And I don't really, I'm not stopped at words. What is important is that the user of an energy service um, has the rights uh, and clear obligations also, by the way, uh, in order to make, um, make part of the energy transition in the most, let's say, um, uh, efficient way for themselves. Because I don't, I mean, my job, of course, I cannot claim any legitimacy beyond consumers in the private mm -hmm. sense, but you have a lot of imbalanced relationships also with SMEs. Huh? SMEs are also sometimes in an imbalanced uh, position when it comes to their providers. Not sure that I answer your question like you would like me to answer. <laughs> no, you did. You did. And, and, and I think I agree with that. It's, I mean, it, you, it's partly it's semantics, partly it's making sure that we just think about citizens in a different way um, than we might have 
done before with the energy system changing so much, um, you know, which becomes, you know, I sometimes think of it as it was kind of seen as a one directional system where you have a centralized production of energy and you feed it through to consumers. And it's now becoming bi-directional or multi-directional. And um, that, that's what makes it really interesting. I think that it's it's much more decentralized and, and the energy flows into different directions, not just from one to another. But it's being decentralized, which I certainly see well, uh, does not mean that there is not a weaker party because somebody else, somebody is managing the system and you're just, uh, I mean, you the consumer is just a little part of that and does not take necessarily all the decisions. And we are now starting to work, we did not so much in the past, on energy communities, which is, of course, one part of also being an active part of the energy transition. But what we hear from some of our members is that there is quite some aggressive marketing practices by some energy communities. Uh, so you see, uh, it's, uh, I mean, we cannot really oppose centralization to decentralization as then decentralization being necessarily good for the people. So we need a little bit to see there. I mean, uh, we have to work on that. Huh? Maybe for the grid, it's the best thing to have decentralized systems, but then we have to see within the decentralized system, how can we optimize uh, consumer protection in that in that area, in that context? Well, Nick, you said you work, um, and I've seen your work also, you work also, uh, which I find impressive because I'm already exhausted only covering energy, but you also work a lot in digital and the copyright stuff. Like if you compare your work for the consumer citizen across the policy areas, is energy a particularly hard field to to or how do you compare it or is it less advanced or if you or is there more interest from people in I don't know if it's about digital how would you compare them? Well, one point of I mean, energy is uh, the problem with energy is that it's a topic that until recently was not really sexy. Uh, so that means that we could not really necessarily raise the public opinion that we need as a backup when we ask for things to be done. Um, the good point is that when you discuss energy, very often you discuss with European companies, uh, or at least companies that are have a have a are seated or active in Europe. With digital, um, in fact, our data economy, our digital economy, is uh, being uh, um, steered by American companies who don't care all about European rules. I have a, I mean, now I'm, I might be sued for defamation, but I don't care. Uh, maybe something <laughs> after this podcast yeah, or podcast. also without the podcast. <laughs> um, but I mean, I really believe that uh, there is a monopolization of the data economy, which is not only bad for our, our markets because companies cannot really compete with those huge uh, companies that only make that make benefit and that can even re, uh, reinforce their market power because they collect your data and my data and sell them without us necessarily knowing it. And it is even uh, so they are not only a threat for our market competition on the market in all sectors. You know, even data access in in your cars, connected cars, it's a, it's it's really something. It's a massive market and there's a huge fight going on. Uh, but it's also bad for our democracies because they decide not only for the markets, but also for your general information, what information you read and what you don't get to read. Because there is this, speaking about consumer policy, one of the, uh, how do you say this, uh, the myths of, uh, or let's say the paradigm of uh, consumer policy is a well-informed consumer will do the right thing. 
But how can you consider even claim to be well-informed if it's uh, Facebook or Google or Twitter or whatever who decides what they push as information onto you and what they hide in the background? And th that's why we have information bubbles and that's why we have uh, uh, elections that are going in the wrong, the wrong way, in my opinion. Then, uh, Just to say that for me, the data economy is a much bigger threat to our democracies while the energy policy, if it's not well rolled out, it's a threat for our planet. I mean, or at least our civilization. So I don't know whether, which one is harder to... <laughs> Being, you have to continue working on both, I'm we afraid. We don't give up. No, we don't. But, uh, the, uh, the, the point is that the, the threat on democracy can have an impact on the energy policy because if you have extreme parties mm -hmm. winning just because they are populist, Uh, it might put on hold the real important uh, measures that need to be taken. So maybe you really, but it, it's very difficult to uh, tackle uh, those external extraterritorial companies. Huh? Although if I can say there has been the adoption by, uh, of the Digital Markets Act, the DMA, by the European Union, it's uh, still in the final phases of uh, formal adoption. But that is something that might, if the commission has the resources, because now they need the resources to really follow up on what is in the rules, there could be really some sort of a control and a, a little bit of uh, keeping the uh, gatekeepers, as we call them, uh, under control. But that will not happen before a few years' time. Absolutely. Uh, Monique, thank you for your time. Just before we go, uh, go then, I'd just like you to look into your crystal ball uh, and maybe tell us a little bit of what you see the energy landscape looking like in, say, 10 to 20 years' time. Um, you, you mean what I would like to see or what I see? What you see, what you expect. <laughs> well, um, I'm an optimist, huh? so I really think that there has that this year, the last months and the coming ones, uh, have been are a game changer in energy policy. So, what I hope to see, uh, and what I think we will see much more than uh, maybe not to the extreme, to the perfect perfection, is that uh, consumers will get rid of the societies of our 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 countries will get rid of everything which is not sustainable in terms of energy. It will happen. It will take time. There is a lot of, of course, resistance from the industry groups that need to reinvent themselves and that, of course, uh, don't want to give up the, the benefits. But I think that maybe not in 10 years' time, but in 20 years' time, or let's say 30 years' time, we will be only with sustainable options. So that's certainly something that um, that would be um, one of my, my things. And then also I really think that... Uh, Uh, we need really to provide consumers and uh, consumers will then have a much more, uh, let's say, easy relationship with energy because you have the digitalization that can also bring benefits. And uh, as uh, the solutions that have been offered in the meantime will be like about uh, decentralization, but with tools that allow consumers to have more control, I think it will be a, a more, uh, let's say, smooth relationship between the energy bill and the consumer. Do you see uh, consumers having a similar um, interaction with energy as they do today or do will they be, be a lot more proactive in their relationship with it? I think they will be more proactive, but this proactivity being made much more simple than now. Because now or until recently, it was very complicated to engage with energy. Now I think that tools are available or will become more and more available. And also uh, the system will change if we have, uh, you know, those energy communities, if they are well designed when rolled out massively, um, it will be something that where consumers will find it easier if um, 
what I would like to see will happen uh, because, you know, there will be uh, at, um, credible installers, there will be available advice, it will be, there will be apps uh, to make, uh, to control your energy uh, consumption and what have you. And so I think it, uh, there will be more interaction and the consumer will uh, use the tools because, uh, well, the, the impact on the, on the household budget is, uh, will, will still be an important element. Thank you very much. Uh, finally then, let's just quickly go around the table uh, and see what caught our eye this week. I can imagine uh, one uh, item will come up. Uh, let's start with Jan. What caught your eye this week? I'm not going to talk about Repower EU because I want to leave that for Michaela. <laughs> um, no, in, in, instead, it's going to be a very local thing that happened in my neighborhood. Um, since Friday, um, we've had what is called a low traffic neighborhood in, um, in, in my neighborhood. And it's led to huge uproar, but also a lot of support. It's a really contested topic. Um, I'm a supporter. I think it's important, even though I own a car and it's, it creates inconvenience. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's quite interesting to see how this is playing out. Um, and um, it's all over the local news. So that's that's what caught my eye this week. I spent quite a bit of time reading up on low traffic neighborhoods. Can you can you describe a little bit further? What's the what are the rules? Are the roads blocked and you can't get your car yes. out? I mean, essentially, there's there's a lot of small residential roads that over the years, as traffic volumes have grown, um, have absorbed that traffic volume, and um, especially during the commuting hours, like the, the rush hour, people just cut through these residential areas. Um, and what this this new low traffic neighborhood does is that it essentially blocks off these roads in a way that you can't cut through. You can still get everywhere you want, but you can't cut through. So that means you then have to go a longer way around and it's more inconvenient. Uh, and that um, hopefully will encourage more people to walk and cycle also because they feel safer. I cycled to school this morning with my daughter on a usually very busy road, and I think there wasn't a single car. So um, they seem to be working in that way for sure. But yeah, let's let's see how it all plays out. I'm living in such a neighborhood uh, since uh, quite some time now. It's really great because uh, you know, just uh, kids can play on the street, no problem, safe, and the cars know that they have uh, that there might be a football coming their way, you know, <laughs> one moment or the other, and we just pay attention. Yeah, cars should, I mean, our cities are much too much designed for cars uh, and it should just change. But that's another topic for another podcast, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely, definitely something we can touch on. Uh, Michaela, what caught your eye this week, I wonder? I'm not talking about repower. <laughs> no, what caught my eye, and I'm actually, uh, because you're usually the offshore wind guy, right? I am, yeah. But I love the photo. It was posted by Tine van der Straten, the Belgian energy minister, this lovely selfie when they went to Denmark last week um, to uh, agree on the offshore North Sea cooperation. And um, actually, I met her yesterday and said this photo reminded me a little bit of, you know, like this famous selfie from the Oscars mm. where you had like all the actors on it. And then she said, yeah, Ursula von der Leyen, she photobombed. And then we had everyone in there and they looked so happy in there. Like for once, they don't have to deal with the energy, you know, and had a nice trip. Uh, so it was a lovely selfie, I felt. Yeah, lovely picture and obviously a very interesting uh, outcome from the North Sea Summit as well. Monique, what caught your eye this week? Uh, I won't speak about repower. <laughs> 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 no, what I uh, found interesting is that um, residential heating is getting some uh, some attention for the moment. Uh, there has been some announcement last week, like the German uh, government announcing a ban 
on the sale of gas boilers as of 25. Uh, then the Netherlands announced uh, the same for 26. I mean, that's the day after tomorrow. And then uh, the commission uh, said something about banning that by 29. So this is quite a move. When I see how much we struggle to get rid of um, combustion engines in the car sector, which is, you know, like 35, um, while the cars are not as long living as uh, gas boilers or as boilers, I think it's a really good signal that uh, we are at least more at last moving ahead. Yeah, absolutely, really good, really good sign there um, for the for the heating sector again. So a topic we uh, regularly touch on in this podcast. Um, for me, uh, I saw a really interesting article in the Financial Times this week. Um, it's got a really interesting graphic um, looking at wildfires in New Mexico and how they spread so rapidly across April and May this year in the Hermit's Peak wildfires there. But also there's a really interesting table at the bottom of this article which lists um, significant climate anomalies from around the world. And I'll just quickly go through a few. These are all from April 2022. So April 2022 saw the fifth highest April average global surface temperature in the world, tied with 2010. Uh, Above average cyclone activity with five named storms. In North America, dry and warm and windy conditions contributed to wildfires, which is what the article is on. Uh, in South America, heavy rain occurred throughout the month of, in Colombia, triggering devastating landslides and floods. Uh, record-breaking rain fell across parts of South Africa, producing floods and destroying homes, bridges, and roads. Um, for Asia, it was the warmest April on record for the continent, um, with temperatures in, I think, 50s in sort of India and Pakistan. Um, tropical storm uh, Meji, brought strong winds and heavy rain to parts of the Philippines. Uh, several occasions in New Zealand had their driest April on record. Uh, meanwhile, Antarctica sea ice was 15% below average in April and the fourth smallest on record. Which And that all that was all from April 2022, which um, I think is, is just uh, mad when you put it down on paper like that, uh, but also goes to show how important all of these efforts that we're making uh, really are make, will make a difference. You can see all of those links uh, to in uh, the show notes. Uh, so do go follow them if you want to read any of those uh, articles. My thanks to Monique, Jan, uh, Michaela, and our producer, Anna. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Uh, Monique? Yes, I'm at, at Monique Goyens in one word. So. Uh, Jan? I'm at Jan Rosenau. And Michaela? At Citizen Sane One. You can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you for listening and we'll see you all again very soon.